Hey, it's a joy and privilege to open up God's Word with you. We are going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41, if you want to begin to make your way there. Um, many years ago, uh, I got the opportunity and the privilege to, uh, while, we, while I was at CSU, to go study uh, abroad uh, and go to the Czech Republic. And uh, the, the great thing about this program was it wasn't just Americans, it was actually students from all over the world going to the University of Economics in Prague and uh, got to meet a lot of different people. Um, I was pretty upfront about my faith, so uh, over the course of the semester, a lot of people from a lot of different countries, a lot of different cultures would ask me questions about Christianity. And so I had a, I had a Japanese friend and a uh, Chinese friend. Uh, the Japanese friend was uh, Buddhist and kind of pseudo-Buddhist, kind of interested in all sorts of things, but uh, not really uh, whatever. Uh, but my Chinese friend, she was an avowed atheist, uh, a committed member to uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And so we had some uh, good conversations there. Well, as Easter came up, uh, I said, hey, you guys have a lot of questions about Christianity. You should come to church with me on Easter. And they agreed. So uh, we got on the tram, went through the city, found the English speaking. Uh, I think it was a Baptist church and, and got in there and the pastor did an awesome job. He preached the gospel, uh, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, we went back, got on the tram, got back to our dorm, uh, and, um, we began to discuss it. And my, my Japanese friend, she was, she was pretty indifferent. She's like, Oh, that was a nice, uh, religious experience. That's fine. But my Chinese friend, she was angry. She was agitated. She had so many questions. She, she was, um, she, she was kind of pushing back, and 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 as I look back on that and even think about that, I, I've lost touch with her. I wonder though, because I think that that was the person that God was doing some work in her life in that moment, because Jesus will often provoke you and agitate you and irritate you before you surrender to Him as Lord. She had all these questions. One of the questions she had uh, and kind of objections she had is, well, what, what, did, what about Jesus from the time he was born to when he was 30 years old and he started his ministry? What about that? Like, well, what happened then? And I said, well, honestly, we don't have a lot of information about that time period, except for one little scene, which we're going to cover in the book of Luke today when he's 12 years old. Other than that, we, we don't have that. And that, that bothered her. And it, maybe it bothers you. Maybe, maybe you've, you've certainly been curious, like, well, what's gone, what went on with Jesus? Like, what was it like for Jesus as a five-year-old? And a, uh, we'll see a, a glimpse as a 12-year-old, but as an 18-year-old and a 25-year-old. What was it like to be Jesus' mom or brothers or sisters? Like, what, what was it like growing up in the community with Jesus? Well, we, 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 we actually don't know. We don't know that much. The gospel writers uh, didn't see, see it as, as important as we might today. Like when you read a biography or, uh, of someone today, uh, they're usually going to spend a lot of time on uh, the background and the shaping influences and the, the family of origin because we, we, we think that that's very important, and, and it probably is. But for whatever reason, the gospel writers are pretty silent on those years. Um, 
But that doesn't mean in, the, in church history that people haven't tried to fill in the blanks. In fact, in the second and third and fourth century, a lot of different uh, heresies actually tried to fill in the blanks to, uh, to go along with their particular view. So, uh, for example, there's these second century, third century gospels like the Gospel of Thomas uh, that came out as a Gnostic gospel that ta- taught Gnosticism, which is basically uh, knowledge gets you into heaven, everything spiritual is good, everything physical is bad. Uh, And then there's the infancy gospel of Thomas, which is not the same as the gospel of Thomas. Uh, But this one tries to fill in the blanks as well. In fact, uh, in in a kind of sometimes humorous way, it's trying to portray Jesus not as a truly man and truly God, but, but really just as, uh, uh, f- as God, as an alien. That the physicalness of, of the boy Jesus was just an, an illusion. And so you've got all these stories. In fact, the infancy gospel of Thomas is often referred to as the gospel of the super brat. Jesus was a brat, apparently. Listen to some of the stories that happened in the, gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas. Uh, Jesus breaks the Sabbath one day by making model birds out of mud, but he gets out of trouble by having them fly away. There you go. There's Jesus as a little kid. Uh, a boy jump, bumps into Jesus. Jesus gets mad, curses the boy, and he dies. Okay? Um, Jesus is sent to school, and he humiliates his teacher by baffling him with allegorical imagery. Okay, that one I could understand. Okay. Uh, Another teacher slaps Jesus for answering back, and he is cursed by Jesus and collapses. But a third teacher praises Jesus' wisdom, and so Jesus is pacified, and he heals the other other teacher. Uh, One of Jesus' playmates is killed, falling from a building, and Jesus is blamed for it, but he raises the child to life and is exonerated in that moment. um, Joseph, I love this one. Joseph, the carpenter, his, his... Stepdad cuts a piece of timber the wrong size, but Jesus stretches it to make it fit (laughs) in this gospel. Um, And then the gospel ends with a slightly expanded version of the passage we're going to look at today. Well, well, that might be humorous and interesting, but but what you see is they're trying to make Jesus into into this kind of like super power force that's trying to kind of like our, our, our superhero narratives when they're children. They're just trying to grow into their abilities. But, but one of the things you're going to see in this passage today is just how extraordinarily ordinary it is. Jesus is, is truly human. And uh, even in this passage, uh, there's going to be some tension and some hints about his divinity. But, but the thing about Jesus is that he was really like you and me. He had uh, a lot of the same struggles. He got tired. He got hungry. He, he, um, in all the ways that we grew up, in, in many ways, he was like us. But there's going to be some tension in this passage. Uh, and we should ask this question, why does Luke, of all the gospel writers, why does Luke include this? In fact, you should ask that question of, of any of the stories that any of the gospel writers include. Why, why did Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John pick this particular scene from Jesus' life in this moment? Well, you could answer it on, on the one hand, well, because it really happened, but, but a lot happened. Like the very last verse of, of John's gospel, John says basically, hey, Jesus did many other things and, and performed many other miracles. If we were to write them all down, I suppose not even all the books in the world could contain them. So there, there's a ton of information that the gospel writers could have chosen. So then we should ask the question, well, why did Luke give us this one scene of Jesus as a 12-year-old? Well, because it teaches us something. 
It teaches us something very important. It teaches us certainly something about Jesus, but, but I think more than that, it's going to teach us something about us. <laughs> it's going to teach us something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See, I, I think sometimes we have an idea of what following Jesus might look like or should look like. And Luke is going to first introduce this here uh, as a kind of theme uh, here in, the, in chapter 2. But th- there, there is this theme that what you think about following Jesus, what you think it should be like, what, what you think Jesus should do in your life often is not what he does. In fact, he's often confusing. He's often confounding. He's sometimes provoking. This is a theme that's going to come up time and time and time in Luke's gospel. Jesus is confusing. He's confounding. He provokes us. He doesn't do what we think he should do. So, so for example, a couple years ago, um, or last summer, we uh, were traveling as a family through Europe on my sabbatical, and we, I knew I was going to eventually come to preach Luke. And so, as a family, we all had our Luke journals, and we'd get out uh, each night, wherever we were at, we'd, we'd get out, and we'd read a passage from the Gospel of Luke. And, and I'm telling you, more times than not, at the end of our family little devotion time of reading through and discussing the Gospel, more times than not, we looked at each other and we're like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know why Jesus did that. It was confusing. It's confounding. And again, we don't think about following Jesus like that, but, but that's one of the things we're, we're going to see. Jesus is going to teach us an important lesson about what it means to follow him and who he is. So uh, look, look with me at verse 41, and I'll begin reading there. Listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So let's just pause right there. Once again, we see, as we saw last week and really for the first few chapters of, of Luke, that Mary and Joseph are devout religious followers of, of the God of the Israelites. They, they obey the law. In fact, uh, they do more than that. Uh, the Passover, all that needed to come to the Passover in Jerusalem each year was the, the father. But, but here we have Mary and Joseph going. It's about an 80-mile journey by foot. It takes three or four days, so it, it, it takes some time. And then it's going to take all week. So you, you got a couple weeks out of your year, your year for this event. And it says every year his parents went. But most commentators think uh, there's something very significant about what Luke is pointing out here. When Jesus was 12 years old, it's possible that this is Jesus' first trip to the holy city. This is the very first time where when the incarnate Jesus uh, walks into the city. Now that's important for a couple reasons. Because he's 12 years old. Twelve is a very important year for a Jewish boy in that culture because when you turn 13, you become a full-fledged adult with all the roles and responsibilities of a Jewish man. And so the year 12, you enter into an intensive uh, apprenticeship to your father in two ways. His tradecraft, in this case it would be Joseph's uh, carpentry, and uh, in discipleship. Joseph was responsible to uh, really begin a a massive discipleship program of his 12-year-old boy to teach him the Torah, the law of God. So so Jesus is 12, and he's in the midst of this 
uh, year of his life. And so you can imagine the scene as they take three or four days and they're rolling in and, and as they're walking just mile after mile, 80 miles, Joseph is teaching him and he's been teaching him. He's been teaching him how to cut wood and, and, and how to stretch it apparently. But um, he's, he's teaching him all these different things about carpentry. But on, at the same time, he's saying, here's what God, God is like. Let me tell you this story from the Torah. Let, let me teach you about this, Jesus. And Jesus is soaking it all in. And they finally, uh, it says they go up to Jerusalem and just because Jerusalem is elevated. And when the first glimpse on the top of, of the hill of the temple is coming, you can imagine Joseph leaning over to Jesus and saying, Jesus, look up there. That's the temple of God. That's where God's manifest glory is with his people in the holy of holies. And just once a year, Jesus, the high priest can go into that presence after making sacrifice to be in the presence of God. Jesus is taking it in. And they go in, and at this time of year, in the Passover, uh, the city swells to six to eight times its normal uh, amount. And, and it, was by, it was a law that if you lived in Jerusalem, you had to open your, up your home to let people sleep on the floor during this time. But, but there would still be too many, and so other people would camp. Uh, community, whole communities would camp outside of Jerusalem at the Passover, and there would be sheep everywhere. And you can imagine Joseph saying, hey, uh, Jesus, look at all these sheep. These sheep are the Passover lambs, Jesus. They're going to take these sheep up the hill to the temple and they're going to slit their throat and the sheep are going to bleed out and die. This is because, and then he would tell them the story of the Exodus. He would say that there was this time when our people were in slavery for 400 years and God delivered his people through these signs and wonders and plagues. And the last one was the, the Passover uh, where the destroying angel would come and destroy the enemies of God and, and all the, the Jewish families that had a Passover lamb with the blood over their doorframe would, would, would be passed over this judgment. And he would explain all the bleeding of the sheep. And this happened all week long. So you get to the Passover meal. And every element of the Passover meal, every, every piece of, uh, of food, every uh, glass, every plate, uh, even the way they dress, uh, there's meaning and substance to it. And it was Joseph's responsibility to, to make sure Jesus really understood what was happening in this moment, in the year that he was 12. So, so that's kind of set, setting it up. And so this week goes by, and verse 43 says, And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Luke points out, he's still a boy, he's 12, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. The idea is he intentionally did this. And this is kind of confusing. Like, this seems, at, at, at best, it, it seems inconsiderate to his parents, at worst, you're like, man, this seems kind of disobedient almost. It says the boys stay behind. He didn't, he didn't feel the need to go tell his parents, hey, uh, you guys go on. I'm going to stay at church for a little while. Like, no, they, they took off. And this is not uncommon. They, they would travel as a whole community, maybe 5,000 people. And there's aunts and uncles and cousins and friends and neighbors. And so they would travel together. So the kids would often be in different parts. But Jesus stays behind, doesn't tell anybody. He stays behind. So thinking he was in their company, um, thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day. Then they began looking for him among the, their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, 
they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So again, you, you can imagine this. Those of you that are, are parents, maybe have, have probably had at least a, a moment where you don't know where your kid is. And, and how quickly you're like, oh my gosh, where, where, where's Bobby? Where, where's, where, where's and it, it begins to descend. Well, they've traveled 20 miles probably about this point. And they begin to ask, hey, it's getting late. Jesus, tell Jesus to come, come. And we're like, they're like, I haven't seen Jesus. Like, what do you mean you have Like, hey, Uncle Micah, go, go back to the, the back of the caravan and ask people along the way, see if Jesus, and, and tell them to come see us. Uh, uh, cousin Judah, go, go, go to the front of the caravan. It, it's like a mile up there. Uh, ask along the way and just make sure Jesus comes back. And, 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 and as they come back and there's no Jesus, you just know that moment as a parent. Like, oh my gosh, oh no. What, what has happened here? Now, now, Jesus isn't five, so it's not a total crisis. He's 12. He's on the cusp of adulthood in that culture, but it's still a crisis. And we, and we see later in, in the passage that they are anxious. They're, they're torn up. They're, they're worried. They're very concerned. And so they're a whole day's out. They're 20 miles out. So, so they've got to they've go to sleep because they've traveled all day without their son, not knowing where he's at, what he's eating, where he's sleeping. Well, what he's doing, and they get up the next day, and in haste, they're making their way back. And you can imagine all the things that are filling your mind as a parent for a whole nother day. But then they arrive back in Jerusalem, and it's late, it's dark, the streets are empty. There's no finding Jesus in that. So they got to sleep or camp out somewhere, and the, the, the city's still full and crowded. Now on the third day, they, they, they finally find him. Here's what it says. It says, um, Ah, uh, where was I? Jesus stayed behind. They began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So, so they finally find Jesus. Now, now, Jesus is confusing and confounding, certainly to those that are out there, certainly those that wouldn't call themselves followers, uh, even non-religious people. They, uh, in the world, there, there, is a, there is a kind of respect of Jesus, like, oh, he's a good moral teacher, uh, and, and the world wants to put Jesus in a kind of category. But, but if you study, like, like C.S. Lewis helps us understand this, if you study uh, Jesus' life and what he said and what he did, uh, he doesn't give you the option to merely put put him in a moral category. Like, like the kinds of things he says and does, it, as Lewis says, he's either the Lord of all, he, he actually is who he says he is, the creator of the cosmos, or he's a liar, like he's lying about all these things, or as Lewis says, he's a lunatic. He thinks he's all these things. But, but he's not just a good moral teacher. He doesn't give us that option. And so when you really press someone from the, from the outside to, to, to examine Jesus' life, they're confused and confounded by him. That's understandable. But Luke's gospel, and this passage is going to show us, the people that are most confused and the most confounded by Jesus are the people that love him and know him the most. Follow him the closest. Again, it's teaching us something about discipleship here. They, they find him after three days. They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. 
Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding at his, and his answers. Jesus is, is holding his own amongst the top theologians of the day. Now, now he's asking questions. It's not that he's, he's lecturing them so much, but, but Luke does point out he's sitting among them. So, so in that culture, the students stood and the teachers sat as a position of authority. Apparently, this has been going on for a couple of days, and so they, they're amazed at Jesus, and they're saying, have a seat with us. And all the other students would stand around, and Jesus, the 12-year-old, and then the high priests, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the, like, like they're just debating, and Jesus is like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And they're like, wow, how old are you? I'm 12. And they would have been amazed at Jesus but more than that, they're probably thinking, man, you're 12. You're in your apprenticeship year. You're, you're, you're amazing, but you're amazing because your dad must be amazing. Your dad is teaching you all these things. Imagine Jesus saying, oh, if you only knew. <laughs> and so when, when Jesus' earthly dad, uh, his uh, stepfather, arrives with Mary... They're, they're confounded. They're confused. Jesus is sitting. But like what 12-year-old is like, Mom and Dad, you go on. I need a few more days at church just to talk theology, right? Like Jesus, now you start to see Jesus is a little different. He is truly human, but there's something different about him. Uh, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now that word sounds kind of nice, but the connotation in the original is, is kind of irritated provoked, angered, like, what? This is where you're at? And so his mother said to him, kind of gives him a mild rebuke, son, why have you treated us like this? Jesus, why have you treated us like this? Listen, one of the things that we learn from Luke in this passage, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, there's going to be moments in your discipleship of Jesus where you're going to say to Jesus, Jesus, why have you treated me like this? Why, why do you do the things that you do? And that's hard. It's hard because we, we want a Jesus that kind of has this deal with us. Like, oh, I'll follow you. I'll pray. I'll, I'll do the religious things. I'll even go to church. I'll, I'll do all these things. And then you make all these other things in my life work out just right. And he never promises that. And so things happen in our life. We're like, but I thought we had a deal. Jesus, why are you treating us like this? She says, your father, meaning Joseph, and I have been anxiously searching for you. Like we've been worried to death. Like why, why would, you're 12, Jesus, of all years when you should be respectful and, and honoring uh, Joseph in your life. This is, this is the moment that you're, you're doing. Why, why would you do this? You're confusing to us. You're confounding to us. And then, just you would think, you would think if you were in that situation, you'd be like, oh, let, let me explain, let me explain. No, no, Jesus adds to their confusion. In fact, Jesus is the one that's confused now. Look what he says. Verse 49. Why were you searching for me? What? Hello? He's confused. Like, why were you searching for me? Uh, because you're 12 and we haven't seen you for three days. And we were all going back home and you're not there. Like, but Jesus is like, I don't get it. 
Is Jesus just clueless here? I mean, is this, I mean, a lot of 12-year-olds are. Is that, is that what Jesus is facing right now? He's just kind of clueless? No, I don't think so. Look at what he says next. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? See what he's saying? Mom, I'm 12. I'm in my apprenticeship. I have to be about my father's business. This is, this is my moment. I mean, most commentators agree that, that this is a, a redefining moment in Jesus' life. He, he's saying, uh, my obligation isn't to my earthly parents. My obligation is to my eternal father and his mission. There's a tension there. He said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I have to learn from my father? Now, now Luke doesn't tell us this, but, but we can imagine as, as Jesus is, is getting lessons from Joseph about the Passover and about the temple and about the law and all these things, that, that his heavenly father is also teaching him on a level 10,000 times deeper. Jesus, you're going to be the Passover lamb. Jesus you're the temple where the glory of God comes. Jesus, you're the law that, you're what the law points to. And so Jesus is like, of course, I had to be. When he says I had to be, it's this word uh, must. I, I must be in my father's house. I'm, or your translation might say about my father's business, which is the same thing. I'm in my apprenticeship. I'm learning. But again, they're confused. Verse 50, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. These are the people that love Jesus the most, who know the most about him, and they're confused. They're confounded by Jesus. Maybe they're even a little bit hurt by Jesus. What, what, what is going on in this passage? Well, Jesus confuses and confounds us. The most simple way I can say it is because he's God and we're not. <laughs> he's infinite and, and we're not. So, so, for example, um, think about your five-year-old self. When you were 10, you thought your five-year-old self was an idiot, and you were right. When you were 20, you thought your 10-year-old self was an idiot, and you were right. When you were 30, you thought it was 20. When you were 40, you thought it was 30. <coughs> because you've, you've grown, you've learned, you've got so much more experience, right? But that's just minuscule compared to the gap between the finite and the infinite, <coughs> Right? Like, doesn't it make sense that, that, that God is doing things and understands and has a perspective, is accomplishing things that will not make sense to us? Like, like that should, you should at least understand that. Because if you have a God that only and always makes total sense to you, it's a very small God. It's a God that's a figment of your imagination. It's a God that is more like a pagan idol rather than the God of the universe who is over and above and beyond all. I wrote this down this week just to, uh, as, a, as a note to myself. He said, I, I wrote, being confused and confounded by Jesus isn't evidence of a lack of faith, but rather evidence of the difficulty of the finite trying to comprehend the will and the purpose of the infinite, right? Like you're going to be confused. You're going to be confounded at times in your following of Jesus, um, Elizabeth Elliot, 
she wrote a, a novel one time, and, and in the novel, so Elizabeth Elliot, in case you don't know, over 50 years ago, her and her husband and other missionaries went down to South America to do mission work, and they were killed uh, by the Aka Indians, and just amazing story of faithfulness and, and all that afterwards. Uh, but she wrote a novel. In the novel, it's about missionaries. And uh, in this novel, the missionary goes down and she's trying to reach this tribal group. Uh, and uh, a tragedy happens where this girl uh, is, is responsible for the death of the one person that can uh, translate the Bible for them. And the story ends just kind of from a mission's perspective as a failure. They failed. And she said she got all this, these letters from these Christians that read the book that were so angry with her. Like, why would you write that? Like, God wouldn't do that to anybody. God, if you're faithful to following Jesus, if, you're, if you love him and you're doing his will, he, he wouldn't do that. And even the president of the seminary that she worked at told her, I kept your book off the bestsellers list because I didn't want other Christians to read it because God wouldn't do that to someone. God wouldn't, wouldn't frustrate someone's plans that are so pure and right and good. She said it was, it was, it was confusing to her because one is basically what happened to her life. God had done that in her life. And two, it was confusing because again, God is infinite and we're finite. The fact that we would think that God should always work according to our will and our purposes and what we think is right and good puts him on a level that is not God, but under, underneath us. Here, here's what Elizabeth Elliot said in her books, Through Gates of Splendor. She says this, God is God. I dethrone him if I demand that he acts in ways that satisfy my ideas of justice. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that, his w- and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. God is God. So, so if Jesus is confusing and confounding, then why should we follow him? Why should we follow him? Well, Luke's not done. We should follow him. Because we're going to see Jesus, though is inscrutable, he is also committed to loving us to the very end, even if we don't understand him. He is committed to loving us to the very end. Here's how it goes in the passage, verse 51. Then they went down to Nazareth with them, and, was ob- and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So so Jesus is is saying, hey, didn't you know I was going to be in my father's house? But then he says, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to submit myself to the authority that I created when I created the universe. Jesus submits himself to the parent's authority until he goes public in ministry at year 30. He's comes under that, right? Why? Well, well, there's a few reasons why. Jesus didn't have to. He's like, I don't, I don't have to obey you. I make the, the I'm older than you. <laughs> like he's the only child that could say this. He says, I'm going to do that. And, and again, doesn't every, every teenager think they know better than their parents, right? Every teenager thinks they know better than, I love what Mark Twain said. He said, when I was a boy of 14, My father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. 
But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> right? That's how we all, that's how every 14-year-old feels, right? Like, ah. Oh. But in Jesus' case, he actually did know better than his parents at all times. He saw them fumble and stumble along as parents, as we all do. And for the next 18 years, I, I imagine as Jesus kind of lived in that environment and will, by an act of his will, submitted himself to his parents. He's saying, I can submit to the structures that I've created. And so, so can we, by the way, if that's the case. But I imagine Jesus walking around and just seeing both big and small, the, the sins of the neighbors and his parents and his friends and the community and just thinking, someday... Someday I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that. So why should we follow him to the end? Well, he is committed to loving us to the very end. He's committed. He's he's doing this. Well, we'll see this next week in John the Baptist. He's doing this to fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus came to live the life you and I should have lived. We, We should be obedient to our parents. Well, we should live under the authority structures that God has given. But not only that, he came to pay the price and die the death we should have died. Even when they were confused, he's like, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to accomplish God's good purposes. We kind of get this in, in this little note that Luke puts. It says, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Now, this is decades after, many, many decades later, as Luke has interviewed her, she's telling this story. And she's like, I didn't get it at the time. We were so angry. We were so worried. We didn't know what was Jesus was doing. And then he said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And we didn't understand that. We didn't get any of that until we saw his life play out and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And then it all began to click. He was loving us to the very end, even when we were confused. Even when we were confused. See, when Jesus confused and confounds you, When Jesus sends us into the storm, it's not because he doesn't love us. That's a faulty premise of our faith. Like when the disciples in Luke 8 are in the boat and and the storm comes up and they wake Jesus and they're like, Master, we're going to die. And he's like, where's your faith? Because their faith was based on, well, if we follow you, Jesus, you'll never lead us into the storm. And you're not loving us because you've led us into a storm. And Jesus is like, but I do love you. You just have a faulty premise. I'll love you to the very end. But that doesn't mean you'll have a storm. You won't have any storms in your life. Listen, we need a better theology of suffering in America, in Parker. Like, it's coming for all of us. And listen, this doesn't build churches very big. You know what does? Hey, follow Jesus. Your life will be awesome. Next week is going to be six tips for your sex life. It'll be amazing. But what you need is to know Jesus will love you to the very end. And he will let you go through some storms. What do you do in that moment? Well, you look to Jesus. Say, and you see him. He went to the worst storm. He went to the cross to bear the weight and the shame and the penalty that you and I deserve. It is a shouting megaphone from God saying, even if you don't understand what's going on in your life, even if you uh, uh, disagree with what God is doing, even if there's pain and suffering and loss, look to Jesus. 
He understands pain, suffering, and loss. He is accomplishing his good purposes in your life. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us to look to Jesus. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I, I know that all of us go through seasons where we're confused and confounded and we ask, Jesus, why have you treated us this way? Lord, I thank you that your word also gives us permission to lament and to cry out and to say this isn't right. Jesus, I also thank you that you know our hearts and you care. You're not indifferent to our suffering and our tears, but you see them and you weep with us. But Jesus, I also thank you that you are truly God. You are infinite. Your ways are above our ways. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be a a, a people that grow in our faith today as we look to you, Jesus, on the cross, loving us to the very end. Lord, help us, help anyone here that is in a storm right now. Help those of us that have been through the storm and, and the storms that we can't even see that are on the horizon. Lord, ground us in a faith that is everlasting in Jesus. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.